Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. Secrets of Contentment. Today I want to talk about, in this series, Secrets of Contentment, which we will finish next week on child dedication. We'll finish the series on contentment. Today, though, I want to talk about envy. Oh, I'm having a problem here. Today, I want to talk about they will change the PowerPoint for me. So today, I want to talk about envy. Proverbs 14 says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. But envy rots the bones. Did you know that uh, our emotions impact our physical health? I mean, science, I mean, this is, this is written a couple thousand years ago. Science has only confirmed this. When you feel emotions like, got it, thank you. Uh, I think I will be able to do this now. Yes, awesome, you guys are awesome. But science tells us that negative emotions, despair, anxiety, stress, impact our body. And on the other, on the other side, joy, peace, contentment help our bodies. And envy, the writer of Proverbs a couple thousand years ago already knew this. He said, envy rots the bones. Envy hurts us. Now, what is envy? I found uh, on a psychology, I think it was the American uh, Psychological Association, something, some kind of you know, group of psychologists, and they had a great definition of what envy is. Envy is a painful reaction to an unflattering social comparison. I love this. Painful reaction. Sometimes our physiological emotions can cause physical pain. Envy is a painful reaction to an unflattering social comparison, revealing the lack of something possessed by another person. So, key thing here for envy is it is a comparison. Envy is not something you can feel if you're all alone on a deserted island. Now, if you're all alone on a deserted island, I mean, you'll feel all kinds of things. Fear, uh, abandonment, all kinds of things. But even imagining you weren't feeling all those, envy is not an emotion you can feel when just, you know, on your own. I mean, you can be by yourself maybe, but it always happens in relationship to another person. It's a comparison. And so you compare it. Now, it's an unflattering. Notice this here, too. It's an unflattering social comparison. So envy is you compare yourself to someone prettier, wealthier, uh, you know, more successful, whatever it is. Envy is you compare yourself to someone else who you see as better than you. It's an unflattering social comparison. It causes a painful reaction. As Proverbs says, it rots the bones, okay? It rots the bones. Now, human beings, last week we were in Genesis, and we talked about the first story in the Bible being a story about blame. I want to go back to the beginning again today, because the second story in the Bible, after the Adam and Eve story, the very next story is a story about envy. And, because, and this is important because I think it just shows that envy is just in our DNA. It's just rooted from the beginning in who we are as human beings, And this is obviously the famous story of Cain and Abel, who both offer an offering to God. 
in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So they both bring offerings. Uh, Abel brings sheep, and Cain brings grain, or maybe some veggies or whatever. It's probably grain. The key thing to remember here is a lot of Christians think Cain's, uh, Cain's sacrifice is bad because it's grain, it's not an animal, and that is, that's just false, that's not right. Uh, there's all, in the ancient world, people often sacrifice grain, wine, honey, things like that. In the book of Leviticus, in the Bible, there was, there was a bunch of sacrifices that were not animal sacrifices that had to do with grain. Cain is not bad because he gives grain, okay? So, but anyway, we keep going. So now the Lord looked with favor, though, on Abel's. It's not because Abel gave an animal. Uh, there's other things going on there. There's lots of disagreements. Co- commentators don't even really totally know. We're all guessing because the, the passage doesn't actually tell us. But whatever the case, God looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Now, someone says, like, how did they know? Like, these Bible stories, could we put some more details in, right? That's what a lot of us wish, or I wish, more details, all right? They don't give us details. How did Cain and Abel know that God favored one and not the other? Everything that anybody says is pure speculation. So some people have speculated that the smoke of Abel's went up and the smoke of Cain's went down. I'm like, no. I don't know what it is. Other people don't know what it is. So here's a guess that other people have had, and I'm making it my guess, is my guess is that maybe the favor, again, this is just a guess, that maybe the favor had to do with blessing. That's how they thought in the ancient world. There's lots of favor and blessing language in the Old Testament. So maybe this wasn't like in the moment while they're doing the offering, but maybe it's in the time after the offering, they see that God favored Abel's offering because Abel and his family were blessed. Maybe his wives got pregnant easier. I mean, again, this is ancient world. This is not how we live now. Not condoning polygamy, but that's what happened in the Old Testament. Thank God we've progressed. Okay? But maybe, you know, or maybe his, cat, you know, his sheep, uh, you know, were multiplying, and, and maybe Cain's just wasn't. So, but whatever the case, there's a favor. There's a blessing on Abel. There's not a blessing on Cain. Now, look at Cain's reaction. So, Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. So, I want you to notice two parts here to envy. All right, I want you to see two parts of what Cain is feeling. He's feeling downcast. So this is, remember, it's an unflattering social comparison. You compare yourself to someone else, and they're better than you. They're more blessed than you. They're wealthier than you. They're prettier than you, whatever it is. All right? And you feel downcast. Cain felt downcast. I feel bad because I'm not favored. My, my offering was not favored. But now here's the thing about envy is when you feel bad in relation to another person, because envy is about comparison When you feel bad because that other person is more successful than you, better than you, whatever it is that you feel, you feel downcast long enough, and eventually you're going to turn that into anger against the person because it's like a defense mechanism. You don't want to keep feeling bad about yourself. It's painful to feel inadequate and inferior. So you turn it into anger against the other person. You turn it into hostility. So there's both. This is envy rots the bones. So there's this feeling of inadequacy, this feeling of inferiority, plus turn it, it turned into hostility towards the person you're comparing yourself against, even though they might have no idea, but you turn it into hostility against them because you don't like how you feel 
with regards to them. Now, where is this negative emotion coming from? It's coming from Cain looking at his brother and going, my brother's beating me in the game of life. That's essentially what, what envy is. Okay, envy, envy is essentially this thing of, you know, and by the way, here's, a, here's a, by a good principle. I don't think it's an accident. Now, we could also say, you know, some people might say, well, that's because there was only a few people on earth. Who else could he envy? But I, th- I think there's actually a good envy uh, principle here, though, is that we tend to envy people who are close to us and similar to us. Isn't that true? So Cain is envious of his brother. All right? I don't think that's an accident. We tend to not envy people who are far from us. We tend to envy people who are close to us. You know, the person who's making $50,000 a year and living in Steinbach generally doesn't envy the person making $50 million a year and living in New York, who you don't even know. You maybe just see them on TV. All right? We tend to envy the people who are closest to us. We tend to envy siblings, in-laws, friends from high school, like, you know, those high school reunions, you, you go back and you want to just see that you're ahead of the, of the group, Right? Not that any of you does that, but the people who struggle with envy. Right? So, we, so you, you, you know, as a, you know, maybe you're a, a woman, you have a big you know, social group of friends. You're not envying, let's say, Taylor Swift. I know she's everywhere right now. I can't even watch football without seeing her. Um, but you don't envy Taylor Swift, you know, and she's going to all these huge parties. and she, You don't envy that. That's just too far. That's too far. You envy the other person in your group who got invited to that thing at so-and-so's house, why didn't I get invited? And you drove past there, and everybody in your friend's group car was there, but you didn't get invited. And you're like, Rrr! and then that's where you feel downcast. Oh, I feel they're not friends of ice, you know, and then, ooh, and then hostility. That's envy, all right? So we tend to envy the people who are close to us and similar to us. That inadequacy turns into anger. Now, in Cain's case, it explodes in a very serious way, right? So Cain said to his brother Abel, you know, let's go out to the field. When they were there, you know, when they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now, thank God, none of you has, uh, you know, we, we, like the Old Testament, in Old Testament times, there has definitely been a moral progression. Part of that, no doubt, has to do with Jesus' influence on the world, I think, anyway, and we don't, you know, most, there's a lot less in just day-to-day life amongst us where we live of the, the killing and the murder and the rape. So, and I thank God for that. It doesn't mean we don't struggle, though, anymore. So I know most of you here, you read this and you're like, well, I've never killed anyone out of my envy. But how do we now, in our times, because envy, when it sits there, it, it bursts out, it pops out. What are, so what are our symptoms? Today, in modern times, we might not kill our brother-in-law or our brother or friend from high school, but how does envy, how do we know that envy's at work in us? How do we commonly express our envy? Well, one of the most common ways is this, rejoicing when others fail or when bad things happen to them. So now, none of us would admit to this out loud that we do this, but this is quite a common human reaction. Isn't this true? When you envy someone, there's certain people in your group or just outside your group or that you know of, like maybe you're not friends, but, but, but they're, you know, you've lived around, you know, you've grown up in the same community, whatever, and you, you would never say it out loud maybe, but when things go bad for those people, you know you envy them 
when you feel good. There's like a rejoicing. There's like a little, ha. You know, their business isn't doing well. Ooh. Oh, their, their, their marriage is, is struggling. Oh. You know you're envious when this kind of thing is happening. That person at the gym that you were kind of feeling inferior to, and then they, you don't see them for a few months. They fall off the wagon. And then you see them in the grocery store and they put on 20 or 30 pounds of not muscle and you feel good about yourself. That is not a healthy emotion, people. That is envy. It's rejoicing. Now the flip side of that is feeling bad when other people succeed. Isn't that true? You know, someone shares with you, you know, maybe when you're, you know, you're more insecure as we're in our teen years or whatever, right? And you're in high school and then one of your high school friends has a girlfriend and then, and then they're engaged and then they get married. And the first time you hear that, and you've, I've never experienced this at all, but you've never had a girlfriend in your life and you're, you feel awkward on girls and then your friend gets married. And you don't immediately feel happy for them. Why? Because you feel like you're falling behind. Right? That's also envy. It's a very common emotion. Now, you can't help your initial feelings. I'm not saying you're a wicked person. We all feel this from time to time. We all feel this, and you can't help what you initially feel. But it's a signal that something wrong is going on inside of you. You're building your self-worth on a weak foundation. So, something we mentioned before already, we have to kind of attack that, so that foundation. One of the roots of envy, one of the foundations of envy, is this subconscious idea that life is a competition and my self-worth is based on being more successful, popular, beautiful, whatever, like just keep going, than the people around me. This is a subconscious idea. Nobody goes home from church and says, life is all about success, pop popularity, and beauty. We all know not to say that. We've all watched the movies. We've all read the books. We all know this is not a good thing. And yet, we feel bad when other people get more of any of these than us. Why? It shows that inside there is a competition going on. Now, by the way, you might say, so Chris, are you against all competition? Like, isn't our economy built on competition? I'm not saying that kind of a competition. Tomorrow I'm going to watch football in the afternoon. That is a competition. I don't want the football team I cheer for to be happy with 35 points, even though that might be a very good score, if the other team scored 38 right? But here's the deal. What is good in sport, what might be good in an economy, like businesses competing with each other, trying to give the best services for the, with the best prices, all sorts of stuff. Those are all wonderful things. But when it comes to your self-worth, it's a terrible thing. So when your self-worth is you've scored 35 points, but you can't be happy with the good life God's given you, You've been successful, you, you, you do something you love, you contribute, you've got a family you love, or you've got a single life you've embraced and you love and you're finding purpose in it, but now someone else has something different and you can't be happy with your life anymore because you got 35 but they got 38. That's a bad way to live your life. It's an unhealthy way to live your life. So one of the first things we have to do is attack this idea that life is a competition your self-worth isn't affected by other people's success. When someone else 
that you were good friends with years ago becomes a brain surgeon or a rocket scientist, that doesn't mean you still have your job, your job that you were perfectly happy with, wherever that was, at the bank or on a construction site or wherever it is or on the truck. Your job is your job. Your house is your house. Nothing got smaller. Nothing got worse because somebody else was successful. Your life is the exact same. You could just be thankful with it. But envy pulls in someone else and says, I can't be thankful for this anymore because there's a gap and I'm behind. And we have to attack that kind of thinking in our subconscious because it's actually the opposite of love. What does love do? Love refuses to see life as a competition. Again, I'm not saying, I'm not one of these people where it's like, I don't think we should see track of points and basketball games or anything like that. There's a great place for competition. You know, on a, in a, on a basketball court, in, a, in, in sports, in, in some of those things. But in person to person, how I feel about myself, love refuses to see life as a competition. Watch, look at this. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Notice that's exactly the opposite of what I showed you about envy just a couple minutes ago. Love, when someone else is successful, love is excited. Love, you know, my, that person I used to know or whatever, that person across the street, my in-law, whatever it is, they've just, they've struck it rich. Their business is just on fire. It's global. It's, uh, it's amazing. And they're rejoicing. I'm rejoicing. That's love. You know, they got, their, they got their health stuff together and they look great. I rejoice with those who rejoice. I don't feel bad about myself. I rejoice with them. And when something bad happens to them, I don't see envy rejoices when something bad happens to someone else because now I'm getting ahead. But when I love someone, I mourn with them. When something bad happens to them, I feel bad for them. Because it's not a competition. I'm not trying to get ahead of them. So, how do we do this? How do we move from an envy mindset to this kind of a mindset? All right, and I think there's probably many things we can do, but I want to just look at a couple. How do we move from envy to contentment and love? Fully embrace your self-worth as a person. Now, this just sounds like modern-day lingo. Fully embrace your self-worth as a person. This seems counterintuitive to a Christian because many of us have been brought up on, the Bible says you're a worm. You are worthless. You don't deserve salvation, which is true. It's a gift. I'm not saying you earn your salvation, but we've so emphasized that we should be emphasizing the positive anyway and saying it's a gift, not so much emphasizing that you don't deserve, but we've taken you don't deserve, you don't deserve, you don't deserve, you're a worm, and we've made a false kind of humility, which is actually just a super fragile ego, where now I go around my whole life thinking that feeling inadequate is what humility is, but inadequacy makes you more likely to be envious. Let, let me tell you something. Let's, let's put this verse back on here. Rejoice with those who rejoice. I'm going to tell you something right now. Someone who is deeply insecure cannot do that. It actually takes confidence. It takes confidence to rejoice with those who rejoice. Did you know that? If you feel bad about yourself when other people do well, you will feel like you're falling behind. This is why insecurity doesn't make us nicer. Like, Insecure people, I'm, I'm not saying confident people have it all together. They, you know, there's problems on both sides. But what we call humility 
is often actually insecurity or inadequacy. And I'll tell you right now, wherever there is insecurity and inadequacy in your life, it will not make you a nicer person. It'll make you a less nice person. Because when you're insecure and you're not confident that you are worthwhile as a person, you're going to be afraid. You'll have imposter syndrome. You'll want to hide it. You'll want to protect it. It feels horrible to feel inadequate. So you will have all kinds of coping mechanisms. Sometimes that means acting arrogant. Sometimes the most arrogant acting people are actually very insecure. Sometimes. You need confidence in yourself. When you're making $50,000 a year, let's say, and you are just confident in who you are as, a per, as, as just a person, as a worthwhile person, your best friend can start making millions of dollars a year and you can still love them and let them pay for your meals. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but an insecure person doesn't even see the benefits. They're just like, I can't go there. They just, they're just shoving it in my face how wealthy they are. They're not shoving it in your face. They're just wealthy. What are they supposed to do, hide it? I was joking with some pastors the other day. We were all joking about how his pastors it's important that you not drive a nice car in town. We all hide our Lexuses outside of town because you don't, because the giving goes down. Like, I'm, I'm being very transparent here with you. Um, so, you know, you get past Mitchell, you see all these Lexuses and BMWs, that's Steinbeck pastors. But anyway, um, fully embrace your self-worth as a person. When you become convinced that I am a worthwhile person, not based on what I make or how I look or how popular I am, you will now be set free to rejoice with other people who rejoice. That's really important. So how do we grow our sense? So how do we do this? How do we grow our self-worth, a good kind of self-worth, so that we can do this, rejoice with people, and not be envious. And I think there's lots of ways we can do this, but one of the big, big ones is this one. Choose better metrics for measuring your self-worth. We all have metrics, measuring tools in our subconscious that we use to figure out, am I being successful? We don't even think that we're doing it, but we're doing it all the time. Now, our culture bombards us with metrics. Constantly. So our culture bombards us with metrics. You're a worthy person based on looks or fame or popularity or wealth or, you know, how prestigious your job is. Like, you know, there's some jobs that are just, man, it's just kind of a boring job. And then there's like rocket scientists and athletes and all that sort of stuff. Physique, all these sorts of things. Our culture says, these are the things that make you worthy as a person. Now, we imbibe these things subconsciously and often flipping through social media, and you know I don't think social media is evil, but I do think that we have to be super careful with it because a lot of what social media does is we take in these metrics subconsciously. Everybody we, we see, have you ever, like nobody posts a picture of themselves looking horrible in the morning and a short video of them fighting with their, with their spouse. Nobody, nobody posts that. Because we're all insecure. We don't want to post that. We want to post what success looks like, so we post something else. But guess what? Looking at everybody else's success doesn't make us feel better. I'll tell you, I, like, if someone actually would just consistently post the reality of their life, they would probably get millions of followers. 
All right, I'm, I'm giving someone an idea to do. Look at how weird and ugly my life is, and millions of people are like, oh, this feels so good. I'd like to go to this place and see what a regular life looks like. But we hide all of that because of this. And here's the thing. Research shows the more, the more time you spend on social media, again, not, not, not any time. You can spend a healthy amount of time, and connecting with people can be a wonderful thing. But the more that you spend on there, because of this very thing, you're imbibing certain values and metrics. It is linked to all kinds of things. Uh, you know, emotional, unhealthiness, uh, distress, anxiety, all this sort of stuff. So, now, you know what the interesting thing about all these is, by the way, these metrics. You know, all these, you, know, you know what these metrics remind me of? This is how animals mate. It was shocking for some of you. Like, here we are, modern human beings. We've hardly progressed, right? The, the female deer looks for the guy with the, with the best physique, the biggest antlers, the most popular, right? This is what, on the whole animal kingdom, who's the most colorful, who's the most popular, who's the strongest, who's the, this is what animals do. We human beings have the power to actually change how we think about ourselves and each other. God has given us the ability to look beyond. So, I'm just giving you some examples here, and I want to give you, to finish this message, three points how to do this. But here's just some examples. These aren't the ones you need to have. These are just examples of biblical wisdom. The Bible gives us many different metrics for measuring self-worth. But some examples that don't have to do with your looks. By the way, notice that all of these things, a lot of these things are out of your control. Your popularity, you know, how other people think about you. Well, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Let's just look at this. Here's something. Do I take pride in my work? That's something for, that's something for your self-worth. Can I, you know, I, I might not have my dream job that I ever had, you might think to yourself, but I have a job and I take pride in it and I do my best that, and I work hard at it and I contribute and my coworkers like to be around me. That's, that's something to build some self-worth on. Do I contribute anything to the people around me? These are all things that are in my control. These are all things I can do. Am I a good friend to others? Notice, do I, it's not, do I have a bunch of friends? That's what a lot of people now think about. Again, social media, in some ways, warps things, right? Every generation has their, has their wrestles. But social media warps things, and now it's a competition. How many friends can I have? It's not about how many friends can I have. It's about, am I a good friend to others? I can't control how many other people will like me, but am I a good friend to others? I will have friends if, I'm, if I do this one. Do I have goals I'm passionate about and pursuing? These are some really good things. So let me just give you three to break this up a little bit and help us just to think about this because I'm going to challenge you after this sermon is done that this week to prayerfully think about these things this next week and take stock of your life prayerfully and go, huh, am I feel, I'm feeling envy over there. I'm measuring my life by some unbiblical, unhealthy things. So here, if you want to build a good set of metrics in your life that you can have consistent contentment with in your life and joy, here's three things to consider. First of all, good metric, things you can control. Bad metrics, things you can't control. How many of us 
subconsciously. We don't, it, like, nobody gave us a list and said, oh yeah, I'm going to take all these bad ones. If they somehow just got into you. Your childhood, the things you've watched, the things you've, whatever, your personality, have warped some things. How many of us feel anxious or envious over things we can't even control? Like, other people's perception of you. How many of us lose sleep at night about how other people think about us? I'm going to tell you something right now. Life is too short for us to tie the ups and downs of our emotions to somebody else's thoughts about us. Now, that doesn't mean we become jerks. Things I can control is be good to people, right? Like, that I can control. If I'm a jerk and they don't like me, well, that's my own fault. But the fact of the matter is, if you're going to let your life go up and down based on other people's thoughts, do you know how up and down people's thoughts are? That's not reality-based at all. So what's something I can control? How I go to work, how I think about my work, how I pursue my life, how I act towards people. These are things you can control. Here's another there's three of these I want to go through. Second thing, good metrics are based on actions and reality, not on feelings and perceptions. This, this feeling one, this is something that's become a big thing in our generation. But I actually think it's been in all generations, but it has some unique, it has some unique things going on there. And part of that is just because of our modern, modern world, the internet, social media, and all of that. But... Bad metrics are, my life is a success if I'm feeling pleasure, happiness, those sorts of things. You chase feelings. You're chasing feelings as this is what, subconsciously, you didn't say it, you didn't sign up one morning and say, I'm going to be motivated by feelings, but it's what you do. Your whole goal in life is to feel pleasure. Your whole goal in life is to feel happy. The problem with chasing a feeling is you weren't designed to feel happy and pleasure all the time. Did you know that? God actually designed us to feel pleasure and happiness in little bursts. But when you chase it all the time, now how are you going to chase that feeling? When you're just chasing the most powerful highs, you can chase it through sex or drugs. I was going to say rock and roll, uh, but it's not, that's not that bad. Um, you know, video games, video games aren't that bad. It's like, oh, he's mixing video games and sex and drugs. No, well, yes, no. What I mean is, like, you can get a high just from playing video games. It's super fun. And you can chase that high for 18 hours a day. And I've watched people actually lose their ability to function in life. Because you're chasing, I need to feel good. Now, the problem with chasing feelings, in addition to the fact that you weren't made to feel those feelings all the time, is that as you chase them, you need more and more and more of the high, like more and more and more of the thing, the drug, the sex, the video game, whatever it is, to get the same amount of pleasure. It just begins to deaden over time because you weren't made to chase it all the time. And over time, it will hollow out your soul. And people who chase feelings of pleasure, again, lots of research on this as well, end up in the long run more anxious and more depressed. You know why? Because ple pleasure and happiness should be byproducts of doing the right things. You don't chase the feelings, you chase 
a life well lived. You have, you have control over that. Your feelings are going to go up and down anyway. You didn't eat breakfast. Ah, hangry. Chase. So do good things. There is nothing. Like you want to get long-term, long-lasting pleasure that increases your capacity to feel more pleasure and more contentment in life? Tackle some big project in life, something you're passionate about, and you have to work hard at it, and it's a challenge, and it takes you a while, and it's not always clear if you're even going to make it, and then when you come out on the other side and you finish the, pro the project, you get a feeling that is, in the moment, it's not as easy to get as some of these other things, but in the moment, you get this deep, long-lasting satisfaction. Chase good actions. Chase good relationships. These are things you have control of over don't chase feelings. By the way, one other thing that happens when you chase feelings is, and this is, again, this is not helped by social media, is people start to think happiness is a sign of a successful life. Everybody on the internet is always happy. Therefore, I'm not successful because I'm not always happy. You end up looking down, navel-gazing constantly, Constantly thinking about your feelings. Am I feeling anxious? Am I feeling happy? Am I feeling anxious? Am I feeling happy? You know what? Some of us have to stop. There is a place for thinking about your feelings. Some of you in the older generation need to think about feelings. Some in the younger generation need to stop thinking about their feelings. Get up and go do something. Forget about it. So what? You felt anxious for a while today. Do life. Do some things. Love some people. Give, contribute, work. Good metrics are based on that. Last, but not least. Good metrics have to do with, are you contributing to the world around you versus are you just taking from the world around you? Again, it is biblically and scientifically established that generosity, I mean, the Bible says this all over the place and science has confirmed it, that generosity actually builds happiness in us. And again, it's not, like, it's not like the drug kind of happiness or whatever, where you get this quick, whoo, and then you need more and more and more. Generosity builds this slow wave, this momentum, this tidal wave in your life of happiness. It's one of the reasons people in poverty around the world, as I've talked about before, one of the reasons they struggle, that one of their deficits in in catching up to people in more wealthy countries uh, with happiness is because they don't have the ability to be as generous. Generosity is huge. To serve, you know, we, we had a bunch of our city councilors here. A bunch of them, they have, they have like real jobs and then they have city council on top. And it's like, they put in tons of hours, they take tons of abuse, but they contribute. They're trying to make this world a better place. What are you passionate about? Are you contributing in your marriage? I, I was just watching a movie last night with some people from church here. It was a great movie. I'm not going to recommend it to you, though, because you're going to think I'm weird. But it was a great movie. And in there, there was this one scene that just stuck with me. I went home. I was thinking about it as I was driving home. And the husband comes home, and his wife is there. And he's so busy. He's a pastor. And he's so busy, he just doesn't even, like, really pay attention to her. And I was like, oh, how often, married people, do we do that to our spouses? Just pay attention. Are you contributing? Are you giving attention? Are you investing in the people around you? 
you have anything you're passionate about in this community or, or in this church, contribute. That's, when you do that, you're going to build long-term joy. When it's all just about what can I get and pleasure and entertainment, you're going to end up discouraged and depressed and envious. Well, I want you to take a minute. We're going to finish this here. And here's a couple questions. You might want to take a picture of it with your phone, or you don't have to, or write it down, or not at all. We're going to take a moment just to think about it here, but I would challenge you to take this home and prayerfully think about these questions this week. Just take a couple of days and just, you know, a few minutes in the day and just think about it. Is my self-worth fragile? Do I find myself regularly envying other people? And you'll be able to find that by, do I feel bad when other people have good news? Do I rejoice when other people have bad news? What wrong metrics am I basing my self-worth on? Why don't we just take a moment, 30 seconds, and just contemplate those things and let the Spirit just do His work in us. Father in heaven, This is actually for our good. Envy rots the bones. It makes us feel anxious and stressed and inadequate and inferior. And we live in a society, it's not that they're trying to be bad, but we've got these tools that increase it by getting our attention always and making us focus on other people's lives. Show us where our fragile egos are comparing and competing with the people around us and make us a truly loving group of people where it would be known about, about Christians here in this town and Christians from Crossview that when you succeed, when another church succeeds, we rejoice with them. When another person succeeds, we rejoice with them. And we mourn with those who struggle. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.